We're here, we're queer, and we're already changing the world. Welcome to the Queer Changemakers podcast, where each episode we will have a conversation with an LGBTQ plus changemaker, someone who is out there taking action in the world to make our community and the world a better place. Welcome to this episode of Queer Changemakers, and today we have Mike Iamelli. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. It's an honor to be here, and I'm even more impressed you actually pronounced my name correctly, which is just like nobody gets that right. It's been a lot of practice. <laughs> and, dude, I think I've heard you on a couple other podcasts, so I'm like, okay, this this, this makes sense. Um, but uh, welcome, and would you like to give the audience like a brief description of who you are and what you do? This is such a question. You know, I always answer this question in a pretty unique way. Um, I am vulnerable, aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, and successful. And I know that probably means nothing to any of you. You're like, what is that weird, like vague, esoteric crap? Um, hopefully it will by the end of the episode. But, you know, I'm always interested in how we define ourselves inside and outside of labels. And I think especially for the queer community, it's something I'm really passionate about. You know, how do we think about this idea of identity when we're constantly evolving and changing and where do labels feel good and help us to understand ourselves or build community and connect and where do they feel limiting and like they're holding us back to a previous version of ourselves and so so much of my work is working with gay and queer men help them to understand their desires their fetishes their shame and then actually build community relationships and great sex off of who they actually are and get their needs met awesome awesome <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for answering the question. Um, hmm. You know what? Okay. So I'm going to go a different way and then we'll come back. So Whoa. a question for you is when you think of the queer community where we are right now in 2023, uh, what do you, what is a vision you have for like the next step, the next level, the future of our community? Yeah, it's you know a hard question. I was talking to a friend the other day about this because I'm kind of in a unique place. I run these retreats um, where I'm constantly thinking about this question. And I also um, am the subject of a musical, which we will talk about later, which is a very interesting, uh, I just saw the opening of it off Broadway. And so I'm kind of thinking about how that musical plays into where the community is today because um, my experiences that it's based on were 11 years ago. And so things have changed since then, although, to be honest, not quite as much as we would like. And so there's kind of this interesting moment where I feel like the short answer is inclusivity without alienation. Like, how do we include people? You know, even the word queer, right? This is a controversial word for, you know, people, especially men of a certain age, that can be a very triggering word. And so how do, you know, I love the word queer because it is so inclusive, right? It spans gender and sexual orientation, right? It, it helps us to talk about a, you know, less constricted world, but also there are certain people in our community that feel triggered by that word or maybe feel that the hard-won work they've done for their identity is being diluted or lost or their experiences may be lost. And this is something that, I think is really challenging when I'm always seeking intergenerational healing is how do we create that inclusivity for, you know, all people across races, genders, gen um, orientations, you know, whatever, but then make sure we're not alienating people. And it's, it's a really hard balance for me personally. 
So what if, so what if you, you had a magic wand, right? And you created the community with more, with inclusivity, without the alienation. Um, what could that look like? And you have a magic wand, so there's nothing stopping us, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I think that looks like, especially, you know, I work with a lot of, you know, men specifically, it looks like letting our guards down in front of one another. It looks like being able to talk about our sexuality without sexualizing one another or feeling ashamed with the only people in the world who actually get it, right? It looks like feeling free to experiment and explore and not feeling shame about what any of it means or that it even needs to mean anything, right? Sometimes we're just trying something for the sake of trying it. And so I think the bottom line for me is it looks like freedom. It looks like liberation. It looks like we get to play and have fun because, you know, for so many of us, there's the shame and the trauma and the, you know, being put in a box of how we feel like we have to act in certain situations that limits us from actually just, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, Justin, but this happens to me all the time. I will meet another, you know, gay or queer man, and I will feel super excited about engagement. And then I will feel like there's this pissing contest. There's this like sizing up, you know, like who is more powerful in a certain place or, you know, more attractive or more successful or more, whatever the story. And I always think like, we're so terrified. We're so afraid. We're so, it's so hard to be vulnerable and connect. And when we do connect so often, sexualization is one of the first places that we go. And so how do we have these really open, honest communications where our guards are down and where we really feel like we belong and we don't have to be impressive at all? That's very fair. I live in Washington, D.C. And it's, it's, a, it's a place where a lot of people come to like, one, get away from certain towns and places that aren't accepting or open. Um, but also like it's politics takes up a good space and- in my mind, when it comes to politics, anyone in politics is like, how do I climb? How do I, you know, even at the base level, how do I tell thousands of people to vote for me at on some yes. issue or something like that? So yeah. I can I can definitely see how there's a lot of um yeah, pissing contests and like competition and there's a lot of just showmanship, um, or one-upsmanship, yeah. uh, which is hard. It's hard because like I guess people don't always know how to enter certain spaces or like what that space is about. And it's like, oh, this is how I have to be because of X, Y, or Z. Exactly. And yeah. I think, you know, th this is something that happens so often to marginalized communities where when we feel there's a very real sense of this, that there are only so many spots of power, so many places to get somewhere, right? Like we want to be the best. We want to, you know, if there are only so many uh, you know, the, this is when I'm speaking more specifically to the gay and queer men here. Um, there's that myth out there. There are so many tops out there, quote unquote, right? And so you, if you are a bottom, you've got to, you know, really attract this person. Or, you know, but in a real way, there are only so many places for a queer person in a workplace. There are only so many, you know, obviously that's changing and we're so grateful for it. But that's, you know, there are real implications to that. And I think that mindset gets in there that, I, you know, I don't want to feel rejected again. I don't want to feel um, that I'm not good enough. And so let me put my best foot forward. Let me show how impressive I am. And that 
you know, if I'm walking into a space trying to be special or trying to be better, which believe me, I have done plenty of times, I'm not actually looking for connection. Even though I think I am or I want to, I'm really looking to just feel safe. And that's really hard because those things can feel like they are against one another. And I love, you know, I mentioned these retreats I run. One reason I'm so passionate about them is because I try to subvert everything that um, I see as hurting people in queer culture and flipping it on its head. Mm -hmm. And so we intentionally have, I know you're a hot tub fan. We have hot tub and sauna time every single night. And it is a huge trigger for most of these guys because they're walking in and for many of them, they're not comfortable with their bodies. And they are used to walking into, you know, the Provincetown pool party where everybody is giving them an up and down look and judging them. And so there is a real trigger there. And then, of course, the sexualization. And can I trust myself? Can I trust them? Will I be seduced? Will I seduce somebody? There are so many triggers that come into this. And what it ends up being is the most connecting platonic space they've ever been in with other queer men, where they just get to talk about all the hard, deep self-work we've done all day. And that's really important to me because we don't always get that. We don't get to just relax and not have to put on the front. And I'll tell you, for the first you know five hours when they're there, everybody puts on their front. And we joke about it. And we actually have exercises to work through it because we know that's how we have been trained to interact with one another. We have ways of keeping ourselves safe. That sounds really interesting. And I, and I definitely see that because I do feel like, especially being queer, um, and I grew up in a conservative Christian context. There's a way of how open, how, what is this container? What am I allowed yeah. to be in this container? And yes. coming from that in terms of safety, especially being a, a black person yeah. in the U S it's like, mm, there are certain mm -hmm. places I just won't visit. Cause there's a, there's a distrust. There's not a proactive. I know that will be a safe space. So there's like all these negotiations we make in our heads and like in any, in any space, it's, it's okay. How do I be me, but also safely? And like, how do I, what's, what's going on? And if I'm, if I'm single and it's a gay space and it's like, am I looking to connect with people? What are they looking for in this space? And yeah, I think there's a lot of work that we all have to do both as queer people. And I think just as people. Because sometimes, even when I talk to like in certain open slash straight places, there's a lot of, who am I supposed to be in this? As a straight guy, I have to do X, Y, and Z. I've done some like uh, sports, sport leagues and things like that, because it's great community. And I was part of the DC, I am part of the gay flag football league. I'm actually wearing the shirt right now. <laughs> Love it. Um, but there are like straight people who've come to join our league and they're like, oh, wow. One... It's a bunch of gays, but still competitive. Also, you're so organized. You have like fields reserved. Uh, joining the league, you get like a jersey and a t-shirt and like swag. And there aren't a lot of fights. Because yeah. in some of the like straight flag football leagues, flag football, very macho sport. Sure. There are people who are just like, oh, you caught the thing instead of me. That means you're better than me. Therefore, I now need to like perform sure. like, and now we have to get a fight because we're just playing the sport and you happen to win this play so yeah and I, and I think the more freedom we have hopefully when people come into our spaces they get to like see that for themselves and they can go in that way but as you mentioned retreats 
<laughs> and that first question of, hey, so what it is that you do? Uh, you mentioned your values and like some of the things you want to see in the world, but you just mentioned a retreat. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about, about that. Like, what are these retreats about and when's the next one? Yeah. So the next one is this coming October. Um, I don't know when this will air, but 5th to 8th. And so it's in a few months from now um, when we're uh, recording this. But um, these retreats are really... Uh, I'll be honest with you. I've been in the spiritual wellness space for a long time. I've been doing this work for about 10 years now. And I've been on a number of, you know, gay spaces, gay retreats as well. And nothing has really satisfied me because it's always, you know, especially if it's going to be queer, it goes one of two ways. It goes either very kind of sexualized and a lot has to do with sexuality, which is great and nothing's wrong with that. But often, you know, I work with a high population who has sexual trauma, who has, you know, experiences where that may not be appropriate or it's going to go the other way and it's going to be com completely sterilized and pretend that we have no sexuality and that's not a part of us and that's by and large most of the spaces i've seen out there like a lot of the spiritual retreats right it's very meditative it's very chaste there's nothing about sexuality and so it's great and i've loved some of these spaces but i've never found a space where i can talk to other gay and queer men about my sexuality in explicit detail without feeling sexualized or sexualizing anyone else and really healing together. And these are the only people who get it, right? Nobody else in the world really understands the nuances of queer sexuality like we do. And so, you know, it has been a labor of love, but um, I rent out a retreat center in the middle of the woods. It's about 45 minutes north of Boston, right by the beach. And it is this oasis this you know i want to create this utopia where we have the whole retreat center hiking trails a spa with hot tubs and saunas everyone has their own room own bathroom which is very important to me given the work we're doing and you will not see anybody except for the chef the entire weekend it's your space you want to run around in your speedo be my guest nobody's going to see it you want to scream trauma and cry at the top of your lungs nobody's going to hear you you want to be more flamboyant than you can usually be in life or dance that's your time and so what we do is we consciously do a lot of work on why we feel unsafe with one another we do eye contact work a little bit of touching um, hands, nothing, you know, more than that, but like feeling, what does it mean to be non-sexualized intimacy? And then we do a lot of exercises. Um, I'm going to talk about in a moment, but also this one's going to, everyone listening is going to be like, what the heck, Mike? Um, we, everyone has a personalized boudoir photo shoot. And I know that that can be super like triggering, right? People are like, mm -hmm. here's the thing especially with our bodies as queer people, many of us have challenged relationships with our bodies. And one of the things we really work on is understanding that if I have been taught from a young age that I am gay or queer, and that is wrong, that that's shameful and being straight is praiseworthy, right? Then I already started a deficit. My worth point starts lower. So now I have to accomplish more just to get back to the baseline. Now, let's add in, you talk about being black, right? If it's, you know, we're taught that that is lower or more shameful or whatever, you know, we have a very racist world, that's going to add a new layer. Well, I got to be this. What if you're femme? What if you are flamboyant? What if you bottom? What if you have shameful desires? What if you, and it adds up and adds up and adds up. And what we start to realize is anybody with your sensitivities or the way you sense the world and your social conditioning living in the world that we do is going to feel, well, then I need to control what I can control. 
where are the things we can control? One is our bodies, right? Or at least we think we can. We can control what we eat. We can control how we exercise. So that becomes something we can obsess over and feel like I need to have the perfect body to be worthy. And it creates, and we have a whole world where that gets validated, right? Because people say, you know, no fats in grinder profiles. So now all of a sudden we feel even more um, compulsion to do that. And the reason I'm so interested in boudoir is none of us have ever had an experience where we have our body against a backdrop. So there's no comparison. There's no other sizes or shapes that it can be compared to. It's just us, well lit. And more specifically, the photographer I work with specializes in helping people to feel their sensitivities or feel who they authentically are. And when you see those photos, I've never had a client who didn't cry. Because when you see those photos, it is shocking. You, you're, it's not about, you know, your butt looks good or your penis if you want to be nude. And by the way, you don't have to, but it's about my elbow is beautiful. My back is beautiful. Every part of my body is beautiful because I'm a human and I am beautiful. And so that, you know, that's one piece of it. And so much of the work we do is to understand why, you know, we fetishize certain things. Um, I'm going to say something that may be provocative here. Fetishes, right. fantasies, kinks. These are simply metaphors for what you're sensitive to or the way you experience life. So if I, let's just pretend, Justin, we're just going to play here, that you said to me, you know, I know you like hot tubs. You said that earlier. I, you, you like um, casual conversations. I'm going to say that you are sensitive to feeling casual or at ease, which means to me that, you know, you might get a little bit of anxiety sometimes because you like to feel really relaxed. And so when you're in spaces that aren't relaxed, it might kind of stress you out a little bit. You often, my experience of you, is you make other people feel relaxed and at ease all the time. You're very good at that. Um, so the type of sexuality you might like is a sexuality that's not all the frills and over the top kind of put together. It's something that's a little more relaxed and casual. If that's true, pretending that it is, then what you are going to fantasize or fetishize are going to be things where there's casual sex, maybe like, you know, accidentally seeing someone change in the locker room or sex that, you know, just feels like maybe someone still has their shirt on and is bent over because this, what it's going to do is help you to understand you are just trying to process and heal yourself. And that's all fantasies and fetishes are. They are just ways that our soul, if we want to use that term, or our subconscious is trying to heal itself. And I want to give everyone an example that's a little more expl uh, explicit, but also uh, obvious. So um, I had a client last year at the retreat, and he was sensitive to desired. He really likes feeling desired, and he's sensitive, of course. He feels undesired a lot of the time. And so he said, so what is one of the shameful fetishes that you want to understand? And he said, I'm so embarrassed to say this out loud, but I feel safe now. I have a fantasy of being gangbanged by a group of men. And he said, I've never said that. And, and, and I just said, listen, I'm not even going to take this one. This is so easy. Everyone else, why does he fetishize that? And they said, is there anything more desired than seven people wanting you at once? That just makes sense. That is a clear metaphor. Now, whether you want to actualize that or not is something entirely different. And you may, you may, you know, a lot of us have uh, fantasies we never want to, you know, physicalize. But that night he called his partner and he said to his partner, I realized something today. I'm turned on when I feel desired. And so I have a fantasy I've never told you about being gangbanged. And I don't think I want to, 
But what I want is you to find ways that surprise me, that make me to feel desired in the bedroom. And their sex life has completely taken off because it's not about sex. It's about you, who you really are and being seen for yourself. That sounds amazing. And I, and I like that end part about it's about you and being seen as yourself. Cause I mentioned earlier, coming from a conservative Christian background, um, the usual response to things is not a, let's see what this means. It's a, nope, that's bad. That's wrong. That's shameful in a way. And that's where the conversation ends. It's like, it's not about, it's not even about what that could mean, how to like see yourself, how to, how to see the value of that desire. And at least speaking for myself, that seems the way like it would come out. It would come out. Like if I ever, I can't even imagine saying that to someone. Um, but if I did say that to like a parent or like a, a, a person in a church, there wouldn't be a let's process this. It would be just a never say that again, right? Like that's that's something you have to deal with on your own. Uh, take that to Jesus and call it a day. So I do, I do, I really appreciate that. And even like not having to actualize it. Let's take this for what it is. Let's like mine it for the juice, for the gold that's in there. And then once you have that, now you at least have a better way to approach the world and to like accept oneself. Wow, that's 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 pretty cool. So like with with this upcoming uh, retreat, how big is it? Is it already filled? Um, yeah, so it's not entirely filled, but it's pretty intimate. So 10 guys, that's it. We keep it very intimate because the level of safety that's required. You know, I know... I tend to be a provocative person who subverts everything. And to do that, I need incredible safety. You know, I'm putting people in a space where they're getting boudoir photos in hot tubs at night, and, but, and nobody is being sexualized here. Nobody, you know, is being re-traumatized here. And so to do that, we need a small group. And I interview everyone. You know, I have a conversation with everyone just to make sure I understand why they're there. Because I want to, you know, really make sure that we have incredible safety. We're in the middle of the woods. We are doing whatever the heck we want. And what we're really doing is just understanding who we would be if homophobia didn't exist or queerphobia didn't exist. Who we would be like, we're in this utopia. No one but the chef is there. And by the way, five-star chef from Boston, you know, it's the type of place where you're like, oh, it's rainy today. I think I'm in the mood for soup and sandwiches. And they create the meal for everybody and every dietary restriction on the spot which I love because I'm a person who has health issues and dietary restrictions. But, um, you know, for me, it's just, it's getting to experience that, getting to experience what does real liberation feel like? Would I be more femme? Would I be more flamboyant? Would I admit to certain desires and fetishes? Because I know it's not about that. It's about the thing it represents. Just like, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I'm sensitive to vulnerable. I love deep talks. I love vulnerable conversations. All of those are containers or strategies or metaphors for vulnerable. Just like sexually, I want to feel vulnerable. You know, my, my biggest advice to couples whenever they are feeling stagnant in a relationship, I always say this. I say, listen, here's why we feel stagnant in relationships. Because we try the same strategies we've been using forever, but they have diminishing returns, right? I mean, when I first met my husband 11 years ago and we started and we got together, and I was texting him. I felt vulnerable texting. I was like, oh my God, those three little dots, like what's going to come? Yeah, this is really scary. I do not feel vulnerable texting my husband today. What feels vulnerable now? 
And that's so important for us because we want to feel like ourselves in our work, in our relationships, in our sexuality, in our friendships, in everything we do. We want to feel what we are most sensitive to. But if we are doing something that no longer makes us feel sensitive to it, but the problem is, what do experts say? They say, oh, go back on your first date that you did when you were younger, rekindle the spark. They're constantly mm -hmm. telling us to do those old strategies and they don't work. Why would they work? So what we want to do is center ourselves, what we feel. You know, queerness in my mind, queerness is simply the notion that what you feel and what you know to be true of yourself is right over arbitrary labels or rules that have been imposed upon you. That's what queerness is to me. And so what mapping sensitivities or understanding what you're most sensitive to, to me, is exactly that. It's understanding, oh, I liked sex with this person because I felt free. And I didn't like this person because I felt restricted. I liked this job because it made me feel empowered. I didn't like this job because I had no autonomy. It's understanding why you feel what you do and that you are right. Everything you feel is right, even what you feel shame around. Because like we said, if I am sensitive to, let's say, feeling free and um, the way that I have learned to feel free, the best strategy that I've been praised for is to be independent. Okay, great. Most of my identity has been built in that. If 90% of my identity is built in independence, that means 90% of my shame is built in de depending on others. And now when I desperately need others, I'm going to feel shame about that. I'm not wrong. That didn't come out of nowhere. That came out of what I'm sensitive to and how I was conditioned in this world. And so my job is to figure out the fact that I am unconditionally free, whether I am depending on someone or whether I am independent myself, that conditioning, I can start to let go of it. And that's so much of the work that we do is understanding that you are right, what you feel is right, everything you desire, and even what you're ashamed of makes total logical sense. We can prove it. And that's the way by understanding it, we actually let go of the shame. I feel like there are so many different parts in there that just that just stand out to me. Cause like I've I've been in different coaching containers and sometimes you're like, how do you a lot of the things we do, we do to experience a feeling. Um and it's like, how can you experience that feeling before being like, I, you know, I can't feel successful until I have a job or the husband or the house yeah. or the thing. But it's like, how can you feel successful now where you are? And I feel like you said something similar where it's like, you can you can feel that independence even when you're depending on somebody else. Yes. It's going to make you happy. So it's it's interesting to see how dots connect. Um, and the truth is about, I, I don't mean to cut you off, I just want to say this really quickly, about your successful that's not even true because we've all felt, I'm sensitive to successful. So I love that you use that example. Um, we've all felt successful at some point in our lives, right? Whether it was like hugging a friend or having a conversation. And so the whole way I discover someone's sensitivities is by mapping how they experience life. What do they feel bad about? What do they feel good about? And so we've already felt it. But then we have this conditioning or this story that a nope, but I can't feel successful until I finish this book. And that's not even true. Of course, you felt successful before in your life. So that's not actually true. But we create these rules for ourselves. And then you want to get complicated? Wait till one sensitivity bumps up against the other. Wait until I have a rule, you know, I can only be free when I'm independent, but I only can be vulnerable when I connect deeply. Because wait a minute, now I have confusion. And what we're going to see is someone, I will totally be vulnerable and use myself as an example, someone who connects deeply, 
mm-hmm. but usually makes it about the other person. And then we start to understand, oh, that's why I do that. Because my rules of life mixed with my sensitivities tell me the only way I can be safe and get my needs met are this way. And if I do something else, I will physically be unsafe. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those interesting moments because I do feel like that inner conflict is always, it's hard because it's one thing to be like, okay, let me accept all of who I am, right? But now it's like, wait, but two parts of myself that I want to accept are blah, 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 are hitting each other. And it's like, well, how, how do you, how do you even decide that? And I guess there's a question I have because I, I see where we've gone, but like, how did you even like, how did you get to where you are now? Like, how did you get to that place of this is how I <laughs> understand sensitivities and come to civilization? Yeah. So I will be incredibly brief. And I do want to give some tangible examples because I think we've gotten theoretical here and I love to kind of break it down to like what you might actually be experiencing. But um, so long story short, I uh, owned a PR agency when I was 22 years old. There's a long way to how I got there. But um, I used to specialize in healthcare reform, and I had a very particular way of teaching people branding. Um, I woke up one day, started vomiting blood. I was sick for about three months, very, very sick. Doctors gave me a few different diagnoses, but the bottom line was something autoimmune. And uh, at the time, I had only ever dated women. I, my One of my roommates was a pharmacy resident at the time. He was home a lot, and he cared for me. And through that process, we fell in love and we had to explore uh, sexuality in a new way because I, at the time, wasn't physically attracted to him, but I was emotionally attracted to him. And so I had to understand, you know, if we, like, we did things like watch porn together and understand, oh, that turns you on. Why? What's beneath that? What emotionally is turning you on? And that started to change the way I saw sexuality. I started to understand that, oh, we have these kind of rote uh fetishes out there, like, you know, bondage or whatever. But what does that uniquely mean to you? And for everybody, it's a little bit different, right? There's an emotional need getting met. And then what happened was I left my job because if you're vomiting blood, probably not the job for you. And so um, I gave a year's notice, do not recommend doing that. Uh, But I was an owner of this company. And I went to herbal school, spiritual schools, nutrition school, I was at like three full time schools, trying to figure out my next move. Left, I was an herbalist for a while for um, Boston's tech entrepreneurs because these people were getting sick. I got sick. I thought that was probably the best path for me, but I didn't love it. And so I started writing a blog because I was very successful at a young age. And I thought, you know what? Success isn't what it's cracked up to be. Um, Let me write about this blog for other people my age to kind of figure out what they're passionate about. About three months into that, a publisher reached out and said, can I give you a book deal? And I was like, yeah, is this how it happens? Yes, you can give me a book deal if I can just like get paid to do what I'm doing. So I wrote this book and my editor was queer herself. And she said, you know, your relationship is an important part of this book and the way you've come to understand relationships. Can you include that? So, okay, sure. Turned in that manuscript. And then I thought, oh, crap. I have to tell people about this. Like my family knows, my close friends know, but you know, people can't find out on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. And so I decided I, you know, coming out one-on-one to people and especially the nuances of the situation felt exhausting to me. And I thought, I've got this blog. Why don't I just write about it? People can all talk shit behind my back, come to me when they're fully processed, feel so much easier than actually having these conversations. And so I wrote a blog post 
And at the time I was writing for some national publications, long story short, one picked it up. And when I woke up the next morning, a hundred thousand people had shared it. And so this post, you know, had gone viral NPR was calling me, Huffington Post was calling me. Um, I did a few interviews. There was a lot of homophobic hate. There was hate from the community, from outside the community, love from the community, love from out. It was just every which way you can imagine. And I shut down. I decided I am not doing this anymore. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I am more than just my relationship, um, which we'll see why I, at the beginning, talked about inside and outside of labels. You know, I've been so many things and had a hard time defining myself in life. And so I left that and I thought, well, I don't know what to do with my life. And I had a few failed attempts of figuring things out. And I had basically given up. And what I decided I would do is go back to public relations with my tail between my legs and beg my partners to take me back in my own company. And so to go back, I decided to host a failure celebration. Now, it's not quite as enlightened as it sounds. Um, I was just kind of like, I spent a year and I feel like a failure. I want to find success in this failure. Find success in this failure. You heard me earlier say I'm sensitive to successful. Yeah. We're going to figure out why this worked for me. At the time, I didn't know. And so I decided to take the one thing I was still confident in and successful at, which was branding, this branding system I had, and I was going to help some spiritual entrepreneurs that I knew. And so I did about nine hours straight of sessions, had to stop sessions to pee, um, did this, you know, branding on them. And these people were, you know, therapists, artists, life coaches, yoga teachers. And they said to me, Mike, but my business is my purpose. You just explained my purpose to me. You explained why I got divorced. You explained like, this is what I'm sensitive to. Hmm. And I thought, well, what? That, no, first of all, I thought, okay, sure. Like, you know, if you want to be delusional, great. Um, I did all this for free. And one of them said, my friend is going through a divorce. She needs this. Can she hire you? And I said, if she's paying, she can hire me. And I made a rule for myself that I would not go back to public relations if I had a week where I was still getting clients, because at least this was sustainable. And now that was almost 10 years ago. And so um, what I really did over those 10 years was come to refine and understand this idea of, you know, let's pretend that every everyone before you have. So let me say it this way. People will come to me and say, Mike, I figured out my life purpose. I meant to be a life coach. And I will say, that's amazing. I would never take anything away from you. If that feels right to you, more power to you. But here's the thing. If you can achieve it, that implies you can fail it. And that doesn't make much sense. How could you fail a purpose? And furthermore, if you can achieve it, that implies you didn't have it at a certain point. So did you just not have a purpose as a baby? Like, when did it come in? When you graduated high school or when you got your first job? But that doesn't make sense. So here's the thing. Before we had language or achievements before we had anything. We had one thing. Every one of us had sensitivities. We had things we were sensitive to. Some babies are sensitive to loud noise. Some babies are sensitive to smells. Some babies are sensitive to connection and they love looking their moms in the eyes. Some babies are sensitive to freedom and they will crawl as fast as they can as far away from everything, right? Every baby is sensitive to different things before they even learn much about life. Let's say that you were the baby who was sensitive to connection. And you loved looking your mom in the eye. And the times that your mom ignored you, you felt really bad about yourself. And maybe as a little kid, you came running with your little painting or your picture from class and your mom was too busy, you know, doing something important. And you felt really rejected because you didn't have that connection. Now, a different kid might not feel exactly what you did, but you felt that because that's what you're sensitive to. 
And if you're that kid who's sensitive to connection, growing up, you might feel a little bit isolated or not like the other kids or alone because you're sensitive to disconnection too, right? If you're sensitive to connection, of course you are. And you're going to be the kid who's going to get really good at looking people in the eyes and having one-on-one -on -one conversations because you know what it's like to feel disconnected. You're sensitive to that. You're going to be the kid that knows how to build communities and how to make sure other people are included because you're sensitive to their disconnection too. You're going to be the kid who maybe grows up and does want to be that life coach. So when you say to me, Mike, I figured out my purpose. I want to be the life coach. I say, that's a fantastic container for your purpose. But it's kind of like a cup. The water is the purpose. The cup's just what holds it. The, the reason that this feels purposeful is because it's connecting. That's what this is about. And that's why you like eye contact during sex or missionary positions. That's why you like to maybe talk or have verbal during sex. That's like why you like this and this and this. And suddenly we start to understand why you experience life the way you do. I love that. I love the, the, you've always been you and here's how it's showing up. Um, that, that, that part really, really resonates um, for me. Cause I do think sometimes we get lost in the, external things um and we think it's that that's what's giving us the value but by you saying it that way it's like no, no, no that's it's always been you sometimes uh, yeah I can go there um I when I talked to my dad about different things it was like that one brother he just you know he knew how to like do the things and I knew how to respond to him and how to talk to him I knew how to parent him but you Justin you were different you were you were like you went and did things on your own maybe and didn't like say, say things out loud and like share it with us but that one brother he would just tell us all the things um and I'm like yeah that makes sense and I'm like what what what's the difference we're like we all had the same sort of environment but um you know and it's like oh it's just because that's the person that I am and I've sort of always been that way when I think about my relationship with my dad and how I might want to go it's yeah, we have to do it differently than you had five kids. You you can't parent them all the same way. Um, totally. And I think every parent who's listening knows this, right? Like you try parenting your kids the same way. Kids are going to be different. We have a subjectivity. We are born with something. And how do we talk about that? And so what I like is the word sensitivity because you're sensitive to something. You experience life differently. If I work with a client, I want to know how do you experience life? I want to know what's like being inside your head. Because then what happens is we've talked about conditioning before. All conditioning means is the rules or the conditions to get that met. So if you are sensitive to, you said, you know, you were independent. Let's say you were sensitive to free or independent. Then you learn rules about life and you learn I can be independent when dot, dot, dot. I can be independent if dot, 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 because that's what the world has taught you. And you start to create these rules. And if I take any person, I take their sensitivities. And I take their rules for life that they were taught or their conditioning. I now know exactly why they act the way they do. There's no question. It is so obvious. And what's even more fun for me is I can explain it back to them. And it's logical because here's the thing. For me, I have tried to shame myself into changing behavior my whole life, right? Like, oh my God, just here's a classic one I hear from clients all the time. Grinder or porn, right? I'm just going to delete it. I'm going to get off of it. I'm not going to use it. Like it's not healthy for me. It's not good for me. People in the community know what happens. Usually there's a redownload at some point. Why does this happen? Because if you take the strategy to get a need met away, but you do not fulfill that need a different way, 
you have no other condition to get it met is the only way. So you're going to get it met. Here's a little secret I'm going to give to my grinder people because this one might be helpful. I have a client who is sensitive to connected. Um, and he said to me, Mike, I am scrolling grinder and I'm feeling bad about myself every night. I said, there's nothing wrong with grinder if it feels good for you. But if it doesn't, here's what I want you to do. What do you think you're trying to feel? What emotion or sensitivity? And he's lucky because, you know, he's worked with me. So he, there were only six to pick from. But for anyone else, you can pick from any you can think of. What are you trying to feel? And he said, I'm trying to feel connected. I'm feeling lonely and I'm trying to feel connected. So, okay, here's what I want you to do for me. Put grinder down for a second. We're not getting rid of it. Put it down for a second. I want you to go find five ways to feel connected. Call your best friend, you know, go walk in nature, whatever it is. And then I want you to go back on Grinder and see if your experience is different. And what he said to me, and this is not the only person who said this to me before, he said, it is like magic. I don't care about rejection as much because I'm already feeling connected. I'm more outgoing. I'm more confident and I'm much more successful. And that's what I want, because here's the thing. If you get rid of grinder, you get rid of porn, you get rid of whatever the thing is that you think is bad. And by the way, I have no judgment on any which way of anything, but whatever the thing is, the, the strategy, if you think it's bad, you get rid of it, but you don't replace it. I promise you, you will go back to it just with more shame. And that is not what I want. I want you to understand why you were doing this in the first place, because that's how you get empowered to either keep doing it without shame or find a new thing that actually helps you if that's not what you want to be doing. Yeah, it just it sounds like it just makes so much more sense uh, to people and like empowering them to to get that thing that they need, because that even like speaks back to your magic wand thing about how to give people more freedom in and of themselves. Um, and that's it all just connects. I had like a number of different questions to ask. I'm sorry, I am I'm a motor mouth over here. <laughs> it's, it's OK. I think you've answered them in different ways. Guys, you like, what's the biggest challenge you've overcome? And you're like, well, it was hard being too successful. It's hard to make a blog post and have a hundred thousand people look at it. Well, let me let me just clarify that because I think this is a big one. People always say, oh, you know, get envy of each other's sensitivities. So you might say, oh, I want Mike successful. Let me tell you about Mike successful. That means I walk into every situation of my life thinking, was I successful or was I a failure here? Because I'm sensitive to that. And I'm sensitive to everyone's feedback on that. So believe me, that also means that I'm going to beat myself up a lot. But what we saw in my story, and this is what's really helpful, is I took seeming failure and I turned it into success by hosting a failure celebration. That is something every one of us can do. Take seeming loneliness, like my client on Grindr, and turn it into an opportunity for connection. Taking seeming you know, isolation or feeling trapped and turning into an opportunity for freedom. When we start to do that, we take power over our lives because what we realize is, oh shit, I am sensitive to this, which means I can see nuances that no one else can see. I am an expert on this that other people just aren't because I'm not sensitive to what you are. I don't experience life as you do. You have had decades of life understanding the nuances of, let's say, independence, independence that I haven't. And that means that you're going to understand, you're going to see it. First time I ever experienced this, I was um, at work. This was way long ago before I even had language to describe this. I was at work and the receptionist had tears in her eyes. And I went up to um, my friend who, uh, who was dating her. And I said, hey, go check on her. She has tears in her eyes. And he said, I was just talking to her. She wasn't crying. And I said, no, no, she's not, you know, streaming down her face, but she has tears in her eyes. Like, go check. And he looked at me and said, I'm looking right into her eyes. There are no tears. And I thought, oh my God, you literally experience life differently than I do. I see vulnerability everywhere I look. I can't help it. I see when people are trying to protect 
themselves and when they're feeling vulnerable, which is why I do the work that I do. Because I want to work with gay and queer men who we are constantly protecting ourselves, not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. I'm very good at seeing who's putting on a show and making them feel safe to let down the walls a little bit. That's my job. I'm not good at lots of other things that other people are good at. And I think the, when we understand who we actually are, it's a lot easier to find the containers that fit. I always say it's kind of like if I've got boiling hot water, I can pour that into a cheap plastic cup. I can pour it into a, you know, a glass, uh, um, glass that has no handle. I can pour it into a mug. If I pour it into a cheap plastic cup, it'll probably melt and I'll burn my hand. If I pour it into something without a handle, I'll probably burn my hand. When I know the essence, it's a lot easier to choose the container. There's a part of me that was like, and end the episode now. <laughs> and scene. Because <laughs> where where else do we go? But I guess I did I did two two other questions about things you mentioned. Uh you you mentioned briefly the off-Broadway show. Yes. You. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Sure, um, I'll be brief on this. Um so yeah, you know, when that article went viral and came out. Um, about six months later, I want to say, I got an email from grad students who asked me if they could use this as a musical. And I think the way they phrased it and the way my mind was, you know, I wasn't really responding to interview requests, but I think I thought this was a grad school project. Mm -hmm. And they seemed really earnest and they seemed really excited. And I was kind of like, you know what? Like, sure, you can interview me. No big deal. And so they came to Boston and they interviewed uh, me for an hour and at that time, my boyfriend Garrett for an hour. And um, neither of us talked about what we said. So we actually didn't know what the other said. And then um, they went on their merry way and I didn't hear from them. This was 2015, I think. I didn't hear from them again until 2021. Wow. And so I just assumed this was a grad school project, right? And it went nowhere. And then I got an email and they said during COVID, they had more time or the height of COVID, they had more time and they um, started writing and they finished it and they partnered with the college to workshop it. And I thought, oh, cool, but still, you know, the school project type thing, right? And so they sent us a taped recording. It was a, a, taped, a table read of the musical and it was interesting. And watching it at first, we got very defensive because we were kind of like, that didn't happen. Wait, I didn't do that. And we're like, okay. These are characters based on us, you know, settle down. And so then I got an email maybe three or four months later that they got into the New York Theater Festival and they were officially debuting this to the world. And I thought, this is like getting real. And they're like, would you come to New York to see the show? And so in June 2021, oh, sorry, June 2022, we went to New York and we went to one of the three showings and it blew my mind. It was, you know, I don't want to say too much because I know we're running short on time here, but what I will say is that there was a moment in the show where the two characters, Mike and Garrett, are intimate for the first time. And then they start fighting. And Garrett screams, I'm not effing gay. And it was a moment where, I'm still getting goosebumps saying it now, I looked around me and it was the first time in my life that everyone was stiffened up and the entire theater had the exact same thought at the exact same time. And you could feel it. And I thought every single person in this room knows what inter internalized homophobia feels like. And it, you know, I just said, I whispered to Garrett, this is so poignant because there's a lot of media about externalized homophobia, which is super important. We need to keep talking about, it, of course. 
I have never seen something so poignant about internalized homophobia. This is going to change the way parents and siblings and friends and everyone relates to loved ones in their lives. And people relate to themselves, in fact, and feel less alone. And I just said, I am all in on supporting this musical. Because before this, I thought it's going to be this crappy little thing. And I have to publicly say I like it, mm. you know. And so they ended up fundraising and they put on off-Broadway run, a full run, um, August 11th, it opened, it just closed last week. So, you know, um, I'm fresh off of it. And I got to go do a talk back for it. And we got to partner with an app that provides um, free mentoring to queer youth. So anyone who sees the show gets free mentors and like amazing things that we got to do with that. And it is just getting bigger and bigger um, from here. So really, really exciting. And what I'm excited about is the fact that this can be a vehicle for advocacy and can really help people who are, exploring, questioning, working through shame. I got lots of messages from closeted men who said that show really made a difference for them. And so, um, yes, very surreal thing, but that's the short of it. Wow. Do you know if it'll be, um, I don't know the word, traveling? Uh, going so it, yeah, it won't tour yet. I mean, sure. it, I, yeah. I'm learning. I know nothing about musicals. And to be honest, between me, you, and everybody listening here, I secretly don't love musicals that much. I know, I know it makes me like the worst queer person in the world, but um, I'm learning. And so, and this show is very emotional. It's very poignant. Um, What I've learned is touring, we're a little too early for that stage yet. There are talks about DC maybe. So they may, it may be going to DC, but that would be just a DC based run. Um, Again, it may be coming to New York. So there are talks about that next year or the year after. Um. But I think it's one of those things where it just takes five to 10 years, got to get to Broadway. And then once it's on Broadway, it can start touring the country. And so it just has to build a following. So um, straightforwardmusical.com if anyone wants information about it. Okay, um, that sounds cool. And also, you mentioned there's an app that provides free mentoring to queer youth. Uh, what What is that? Because I Yeah, amazing. So we I've been able to partner, I actually found a mentor. So it's not just youth. I'm just, you know, really excited about that portion of it. And they just got approval for um, 15 plus on it. So before I think it was 18 plus. And so it's exciting that they're able to work with uh, youth now. But um, it is called Worthy Mentoring. You can download on the App Store, I think on either Android or um, iPhone or the Apple. Um, but it uh, basically you kind of input what you're looking for um, if you were looking for a mentor. So you might, you know, you can put in age range, race, um, like a job, you know, if you're looking for kind of issues with work and maybe someone who's in the job world or knows about that. And then what will happen, you know, religion, if that's important to you, it will kind of spit out the top mentors for your criteria and you can message them and actually connect with them. And so I was able to meet an amazing 70 year old gay man who he was actually one of the founding board members of the Victory Fund. He's done so much work with politics, just absolutely incredible person who has really helped me. And through partnership with him, I've really gotten close with the CEO of this company, which is how we have connected him with the musical. And now he's doing some amazing things there. So um, Worthy Mentoring, it's a great place. Anyone listening can be a mentor or mentee or both. That sounds that sounds great. Um as we wind down, as we wind down, I'm trying to think of what 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 else I wanted to ask, uh, and still matters. Um, okay, so you mentioned two things. You mentioned that this um, retreat is happening in the beginning of October. 
Yep. And you mentioned that you do provide a level of coaching or, or something for people. I do. So I do one-on-one -on -one work. Yes. I mean, it's not just the retreat you have to wait for. So I do one-on-one -on -one work. Um, you can hire me to just map your sensitivities if you want to know what are these things. Um, I'm very thorough, probably problematically so. So it's a two and a half hour session. It is extensive. I know um, we go through everything in your life because you know me, vulnerable here. I need to make sure that you feel incredibly safe. If we're going to talk about anything that's even remotely traumatic, it cannot be re-traumatizing. And so this is an experience where honestly, it just feels like this. We're hanging out. We're having a conversation. You don't even know I'm working, but my mind and my whiteboard is mapping your emotional patterns. And then I guide you through a few visualizations that help you to feel what you told me, but make sure that your body actually feels the words you use. You would be surprised how often we use words we don't actually feel. And then we boil that down to where those five or six core sensitivities. And so that process, um, I do one-on-one. -on -one. And I also take on a limited number of continuing clients um, from there who actually, we kind of implement that. We find them love or help them love their bodies or remove shame or understand their desires and fetishes. And there's a little bit more flexibility in how that works. And if you, anyone who is interested in the retreat, I should just say this, um, if you do sign up for the retreat, I include the mapping there. So everybody has a one-on-one -on -one session with me that would be either mapping or if they've already done mapping, um, a coaching session with me, astrology as well, because I'm a big fan of it and using archetypes. We're a very scholarly astrologer there, um, boudoir sessions, and then a lot of really powerful, deep unpacking work where we start to understand why we have shame, why we fetishize certain things, all that stuff. Awesome. Uh, and so if someone were interested, what would they, how would they contact you or? Yeah. Um, so you would actually be shocked. My Instagram was just disabled yesterday. So I would have said Instagram, I have a new Instagram today with like, 20 followers. So follow me on Instagram is my first thing. Um, but it's just at Mike underscore IMLE now instead of at Mike IMLE. So the underscores in between, or you can just go to my website, mikeimle.com or the easiest way. I'm pretty flexible. Just email me Mike at mikeimle.com. And I will tell you a little bit more about it. I usually any level of my work, just given the sensitivity, I like to have a quick 15 minute conversation, hear a little bit more about you. And then I'll guide you honestly to what I think is the best path for you out of what I offer or what some of my friends offer. Um, awesome. Awesome. Uh, all right. So I have a couple rapid fire questions. Let's do it. Uh, and let's see, let's see. So, uh, first, uh, what is something or yeah, what is something that inspires you or why? And why? Oh, gosh. Um, queer entrepreneurs, you. I mean, anybody who is putting themselves out there in any way. I mean, think about the musical guys, like to put your art and these soul wrenching songs on stage. I am just my, I guess, acting too. Like right now, I am just amazed by people who can put that level of vulnerability out there. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so my question, you say pride, but it's summertime. Um, do you have a favorite uh, moment of this past summer that that sticks out or pride, either one? Yeah, I mean, I like the 365 pride mentality. So, you know, always rooting for every day. Um, this summer, I think going to the musical was a big deal for me and just kind of seeing people's reactions, seeing the tears, seeing how meaningful it was for people. Um, it just made me realize our stories do matter. And that's why I'm super passionate about what you're doing with this podcast because we really underestimate how much our stories can make an impact okay nice and um a favorite self-care routine that i am 
a big bather. So I have a clawfoot bathtub in my house. I love to take like not for, you know, hygienic or cleanliness reasons. I shower, but I like to bathe just like put some essential oil, some Epsom salt in and just totally chill out. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and now uh, fun one. Uh, do you have a favorite joke or something that that uh, made you laugh recently? Oh, gosh, a favorite joke. I mean, I feel like everything makes me laugh. Um, I have to think of something that's really funny. You know, we just watched just because it's like a comedy show I saw. We just watched After Party on um, Apple TV. I don't know if you know of it, but it is the um, murder, mis murder mystery comedy um, show. T Tiffany Haddish is the okay. uh, detective. There's, I don't know. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of celebrities who are in it. Very, very funny. Um, and that made me laugh. So I, I hope that's like not a cop-out answer. No, it, 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 it counts. It counts. Um, I love Tiffany Haddish. Um, and now a, a queer person um, who inspires you. Um, Gosh, this is so, you're asking me such good questions. You know, I think there are so many. I think, you know, um, Daniel Levy's done such an amazing job with Schitt's Creek and kind of telling a story that um, has given some nuance to the queer experience. I really love that work that he's done. Um, oh gosh, there's so many. I mean, honestly, the musical guys, I am just, especially I Billy Aberly and Chris Sable are their names. And both of them are so brilliant, but Chris Sable's music is just, he articulates experiences that I never told him. And I think that's because they are so universal. And so I think when people get that album, which I cannot wait, hopefully next spring, um, it is just so poignant and so powerful. And I feel like any queer artist is just blowing my mind these days. Okay, okay. Um, and that's almost it. And I guess the last thing I'll ask, is there a piece of advice or guiding word of wisdom for people who might be listening who, yeah, for people who might be listening to this? You know, I think I always end interviews with this quote, and I want to expand upon it a tiny bit, but you never have to try to be yourself. If you're trying, it means you're being somebody else. I don't mean that life is effortless. What I mean, especially for those of us who've come out, we have this sense that, you know, yes, it takes horrific effort and lots of, you know, self-work and working through shame, but there's something organic and natural about how you get to be. You don't have to put on this act or be someone. And I want that because I know queer people really understand that. I want that to expand to everything. I want sex to feel like that. I want relationships to feel like that. I want friendships. I want everything to feel like you were having coffee with a best friend. And you're not overthinking. You're not questioning what you say. Hours fly by. Genius spills out of you. And you just get to be you. And I think I really want all of us to know. I know we have been taught that to be ashamed and that we are wrong in some way. And we have to accomplish all these great things just to get back to baseline. And I want us to realize you're right and you're perfect. And we can actually understand that. We can kind of map that and figure it out and realize that like, if somebody doesn't get you, I'm not pouring water into a tiny cup, letting it spill all over the floor and shaming the water. I'm getting a bigger cup. I want us all to get a bigger cup. Awesome. <laughs> Wanted to let that moment just hang there for a little bit. Um, Thank you so much for this. Uh, there are so many different words of wisdom and ideas. And um, yeah, like 
I've taken notes and I don't even know what to highlight in the show notes. But uh, thank you so much for this, for doing this. Um, it's It's been a treat. It's been a joy. It's been a ride. And yeah, I look forward to hopefully seeing the show in DC and or at least getting the, the musical album whenever that is released. Uh, me too. I'm so excited. And thank you, Justin. I'm really, really grateful for this. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Queer Changemakers podcast. I'm your host, Justin Mezzetin, and I hope that you're able to learn from what you just heard and think of ways that you yourself can also make change in your community for the better. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.